This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Be careful now, it says in the book that what makes Gina cry is people being kind. <laughs> Good evening, it's ladies. It's true. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruth Wishart. It's my very great pleasure this evening to be chairing this event at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. And we know that crusaders come in all shapes and all sizes, but perhaps one of the most unexpected women to don armour and take aim at the UK government was an investment analyst, marketing guru and lobbyist, lobbyist for fair financial services. Now, it's true that Gina Miller didn't actually plan to challenge the UK government's original intention to trigger Article 50 without reference to Parliament or specific legislation. But when she looked around to see who else would stick, above, stick their head above the constitutional parapet, actually, the landscape wasn't actually crowded. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of people agreed with her contention that the best way to protect parliamentary sovereignty was hardly likely to be sidelining it over the greatest political issue of the day. But nobody else was prepared to put themselves and their reputation right on the line. Yet, as she tells us in this memoir, Rise, if you fail to make your voice count, it will be drowned out by those who shout the loudest. In the end, as we know, she won a famous court victory, forcing the government to respect parliamentary process. But that victory came at a very steep price. Since then, she's had to contend with vicious personal threats against herself and her family and barely disguised racial slurs and abuse. She's proved over these months to have, um, if you'll pardon the technical expression, rather more balls than many <laughs> of the male critics who've tried to silence her. And I wouldn't bet on them succeeding any time soon. <laughs> Her memoir, as honest as it is sometimes alarming, explains why and how she found the strength to take on the government and the establishment. Please welcome Gina Miller. Now, you're probably um, one of the only authors that's ever been at the Edinburgh International Book Festival who had a petition against the book before you even started writing it. It, it, it was quite extraordinary. First of all, can I say thank you and welcome to everyone. You are so kind to be here. Um, yes, it was rather odd because I hadn't actually decided what the book would be about or the title or anything else about it. And suddenly there was this sort of 3,000 plus um, petition overnight to ban the book that I hadn't all written, <laughs> which, is, which was rather odd. Um, and uh, it grew, and uh, I believe that recently there's been another petition to, um, on social media that when the book is published to have a mass burning of the book, which um, troubles me from if we put our minds back in history to burning of books is very disturbing. But I did say to my wonderful team at Canongate, they'll have to buy it first. Um, so... <laughs> Um, so we will see, but as we will probably go through this interview, and I do often in the book, there are too many throwbacks to history that we cannot ignore. Um, and it's very much a theme I wanted to write about in, our book, in the book, which is, this is no time for silence. This is no time to sit back. This is the time to rise. And yet, it was a time for silence for a lot of people you expected to... Um, lend their support. I mean, there were two other people who were supposed to be claimants in the case, and they kind of disappeared like snow off a dike when they found out <laughs> what it might involve. And then um, you, you hoped that after the court case there would be a, a chorus of support. I mean, how's that going? <laughs> um, there are different choruses. Uh, it's been interesting for me because I'm not someone, whom people may have realised by now, who's dissuaded from my course of action easily. But there is a change. There is hope. There is a change happening. 
those people who were on the fringes, who have now become front and center and dominating conversations, are not getting their way because people are realizing their true agenda. They're not stupid. They're not, they haven't suddenly woken up and decided to be silly. There is a very determined intellectual ideology going on that people are waking up to. And I'm seeing that, and it gives me hope. So the voices of hate may be out there, but the voices of reason are also rising up. And that's very, very important. Let's just, um, I don't want to dwell on it too much, Gina, for obvious reasons, but let's just, um, let's just talk about these voices of hate for a while, <laughs> because you couldn't have... You couldn't possibly have anticipated the sheer mm. level of venom and abuse that, that um, you got even before you got to court. No, absolutely not, because there's two things to bear in mind. That uh, when we went to the administrative court hearing on the 19th of July um, 2016, I was the only claimant in my case because the other two had slipped away or for whatever reasons. Um, but there were actually four other cases that were addressing slightly different legal angles to my own. And it was Lord Levinson on that administrative hearing that made me the lead claimant. And I think he did it for two reasons. I mean, obviously he can't confirm it, but I think one of the reasons is that our case, a skeleton it's called, that we presented, was purely focused on the black and white letter of the law. We said nothing political. We were so conscious of the febrile environment that we made sure that our case was about the black and white constitutional law of the United Kingdom. The second reason I think that they chose me as a lead claimant is I'd managed to bag a certain Miss, uh, Lord Panic, um, who is, this was going to be so difficult a case to argue that he is considered one of the most extraordinary legal minds in the United Kingdom. And because I'd managed to bag him, as I call it, um, at a very reasonable price. <laughs> um, Did you give you a discount? <laughs> Let's just say Lord Panic's discounts are possibly not you, what you and I would call discounts. But he did. Um, but uh, the whole team were extraordinarily generous from that point of view. But getting back, to, because we had I, the team and the strength of our case, I think that's why I was made a lead claimant. So this whole idea that I put myself up for this is complete and utter nonsense. I just happened to be, for whatever reason fate decided, that I was the lead claimant. Um, so that's really important to understand how that happened. But then, when the press started reporting that I'd been made the lead claimant, I had no idea that the language, the vitriol, the hate for somebody like me, for a woman of color who is supposedly successful in and in a negative way, would be subjected to so much hatred, violence, and vitriol. I didn't know that that was the country I lived in. I knew that there would be a backlash. I've been a campaigner for nearly 20 years. I'm used to backlashes. Um, I'm used to people not liking me. In fact, I'm very good at getting people to not like me. Um, <laughs> But I had no idea. I didn't know that people would think that I was an animal or that I should be um, only... My children are here, so I won't say this, but only have three professions, um, that I should be caged, that I should be beheaded, I should be hunted and whipped. I didn't know that people thought it was okay to say those things in public. And not just online, because there is a huge misconception that the violation of individuals is happening online. It's also happening offline. And that I find more disconcerting, because it's more premeditated to write a letter, to put it in an envelope, to put a first-class stamp on it, walk down to a postbox and post it when the words are filled with such venom and such hatred, and such, so many death wishes often, I didn't know that that's the country I lived in. There's a point in the book where you've 
you've got two big files of, of abusive mail that that you, I think your legal team may have had, but you hadn't seen. You'd seen lots of other stuff, as, as you've just articulated, but there's these two major files. I'm wondering, A, what possessed you to read them, and B, how you coped with it? I started reading the files because I want to understand other people's minds. There is no point me just talking or reading people who agree with me. I've never done that. I want to understand the other point of view. Um, and I, un I want to understand the reasoning behind it, not just the, the sort of surface. I want to understand where it comes from, um, because then I can reach out and engage. Um, but w I couldn't read the files, because I soon realized that there wasn't very much reasoning behind it. It was just pure hatred, in a way that seemed to have no real basis it, I was somehow, as you know, from a particular right-wing paper put it, Gina, you gave us all we needed. You were the, the Barbie doll. You gave us everything we needed to make you a victim. Um, because there was something that I realized afterwards that happened and it hadn't crossed my mind until after when I started speaking with journalists. Because I said, why are you writing about me like this? Why are you talking about me like this? Is that they had realized that if from that 19th of July to the actual court case in October, if they had destroyed me, I wouldn't, there wouldn't have been anybody else to bring the case. Do you think it was as, as determined as that? Oh, they absolutely, I know now. If they no, no, I know you it. them up. Yep. I, I know it. There were, there were meetings to say, what can we find to destroy Gina over the summer to ensure this case doesn't go ahead? Well, having read the book, of course, I know that there's not much that, that can destroy Gina <laughs> because, I mean, it's a study in resilience all through your life. And we'll come on to bits of that in a minute. But I'm just wondering about the impact, not just on yourself, um, because, you know, you talk about the insults becoming cumulative, the, the effect of them cumulative. And you also talk about the impact on your family. I mean, you talk about the fact that you and your husband, you said there's, there's not really any spontaneity anymore because you can't just decide to go out as you might have in the past. I mean, if you'd known then what you know now, would you still have gone ahead? Absolutely, without a doubt. And my husband and I talk about this, and we talk about this because I've not given up fighting, um, and I have no intention to do so. And he knows I'm not going to. I'm just not that sort of person. Um, and where I think we're ultimately going is so dangerous that, no, I would never stop. I, I cannot sit back. My husband's here again as well, and you know, I, as he calls me, I'm a mental and physical fidget. Um, I just cannot sit by and watch people hurting or things being done to others that they do not deserve. So I would never stop. Regardless. Regardless. It is, there's something, I'm supposed to be doing what I'm doing. Now, I want to talk a little bit, if, if I may, about your earlier years before you, before you uh, married Alan and had the, had the two kids and, and, and of course, your, your older daughter. You, you've had a pretty... You've had a series of... I mean, to call them challenges seems a bit underpowering, but, I mean, <laughs> you had, a, you had a, a brutal assault when you were a student. Um, you, when you were 23, um, you gave birth to your first child and she was a learning disabled um, child, Lucianne. And then... Um, your second marriage, you married a, somebody who was involved in domestic violence. I mean, all these things, any one of these things might have knocked a, more resi a less resilient person off the perch. What keeps you going? What, keeps, what makes you pick yourself up and go for it time after time? I think um, it's a, just who I am. I can't explain it. Um, it's nature and nurture, I don't know. It's just who I am. But then part of me always thinks there's somebody worse off than me. Um, there's always somebody worse off than me, and I have enough in me to pick myself up. And the other thing I've learned over time is it becomes a habit. It becomes easier to be resilient. It becomes easier to be a campaigner, an advocate. It becomes almost part of your personality the more you do it. Um, it's something you just learn, but... Not everyone can be resilient. I do know that. And they, I would never expect anybody else to be able to do uh, or to try and emulate. I don't want anyone to re read this book and feel that 
they have somehow failed in not being resilient because everyone has to live the life the way they want to live it. And what I want people to read the book and to, to understand and hopefully I help them with is that just be honest with who you are. And to me, being a fighter is who I am. I just can't imagine being any other way. Though one of the sins that you do face up to in the book <laughs> is being too proud. And I'm thinking back to that time when you, you finally left an abusive marriage and you had Lucienne with you, who was a, a vulnerable young person. And you literally had nowhere to go. You went out with two little cases. And sometimes you wound up uh, sleeping in your car in a multi-story because you had nowhere to go at that particular moment. And I'm thinking, why on earth didn't you phone one of your brothers? Yes, I'm big fault of mine. I'm very proud. I don't want to be a burden to other people. Um, I'm sure he wouldn't have looked at it like I that. I know. He has read the book and told me off for that. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I have a belief in my ability to cope. Um, and also, in that particular incident, I didn't want my brother to have to lie for me that if my abusive husband had turned up to his door, which he did, I didn't want him to lie or have to lie and say, I don't know where Gina is. So I don't want to put other people in the position where they have to cover for me or um, fight for me. I believe I can do it. I do need their support. I do need people's support. We all need to support each other. But I'm pretty bad at doing that. Um, I'm learning. I'm better at it now. But at the time, I just, I just didn't want my family to have to have the burden of somebody who was trying to destroy me. There's one or two other myths in the book that you've exploded, and I, I just want to pick on a couple of them. One of them is that, um, I mean, you've, you've been a very successful woman in your own right. You've worked very hard to get where you are. You've put back uh, in a number of ways into society by your, uh, trying to make the financial services system fairer, trying to help uh, charitable causes, all of these things. But constantly, uh, people seem to assume that you've got a, a series of <laughs> secret paymasters. I know, if only I had. Um, no, there seems to be, this, there's so many things that have surprised me about the, um, the abuse or all the negativity I get. It's this idea that as a woman, especially a woman of colour, I couldn't possibly be bright enough or successful enough to have my own money. It must be that I'm some sort of a puppet, that uh, they've got, I've got all these incredibly rich men behind me pulling my strings. As I say, if only. Um, it is, it is shocking to me, again, that we have not moved on as a society where women can be respected for being, having the intelligence, the integrity and the success to have their own money and to be able to make their own decisions about the paths and the choices they make. Um, it, it is a degradation, <coughs> I think, of women to think that you have to have a man point, you know, navigate your, your life for you and your choices for you. Um, I think it's very telling those um, accusations. But I think it's also quite interesting who the people who put forward the accusations because they reveal as much about themselves in doing so as what they're trying to portray me as. And, you know, and I get the sense that they're actually quite frightened of strong women. And in your case, I understand absolutely why. <laughs> But you're also dealing all the time with a lot of um, uh, smears uh, in, and, and casual stereotyping in the, in the media. And I'm conscious of the fact that you, you, know, you're, you, you didn't finish your law degree for the reasons that we spoke about, but you had a marketing degree, you've been very successful in financial services, you know, you've got a huge range of achievements in your CV, and yet newspapers keep calling you former model, which I think you did for two minutes as a student. Yeah. Yes, it, it, it's again a way of chipping away. The adjectives they use are there for a reason. It's very purposed. It's very deliberate. Um, I think when you consider some of the right-wing press and the, uh, the, the um, property or the intellectual space and the communication space that they occupy, every word is deliberate. Every adjective is deliberate. It's to try and paint me in a particular way. Um, because they 
they think that's a way to, to, if you like, dent my confidence and to try and paint me as something lesser so people have a lesser view. And the more they do it, I don't think they actually realize and understand me at all. Because the more they do it, the, the more empowered I feel. This is, they've so got me wrong. I could perhaps sit them down and explain to them how you actually deal with a woman like me, but I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> it would because, spoil your fun yeah, apart from the other. Well, the thing is, you know, if, if they actually realize that, I, you know, I, and uh, my, as I said, my, my brother's here, you know, I'm a great Bruce Lee fan. Um, and Bruce Lee said, what you do is you absorb the energy and redirect it. And that's what I do. And the more they give me that negative energy, it turns into positive energy for me. So, you know, the more they criticize me and not what I'm saying and what I'm doing, I think, of course I'm right, because you can't actually find any fault in my argument. If they really could find the fault in my argument, if they could really stand up and say, for A, B, C, you are wrong, what you're saying is wrong, they would do it. And because they attack me, I just look, read it and think, thank you very much, you've just confirmed my argument for me. There's a, a lot of um, material in the book about your, uh, about your early years and especially about your father, who was an attorney general in, in Guyana. And, and he, from him, you seem to have got a very specific set of personal values which you've hung on to and which have informed most of what you do. Yes, my father, if I could write a book about, another book about somebody else, is, is uh, you know, at the age, very young age, he was somebody who was um, serving petrol in a, in a uh, you know, at 14 years old, 15 years old, saved up his money, went to night school, um, you know, then ended up with a law degree and became attorney general. So from petrol tump, pump attendant to attorney general is quite an not extraordinary... Not bad going. Yeah. Not bad going. Um, but um, he and I had a very special relationship when I was growing up. And he spoke to me in a way that gave me a real sense of understanding of our place in the world, my responsibility as a member of a community, the role of the law, the role of justice the mo role of civic duty. Um, he was very politically active. And ironically, my mother was very worried about how politically active he was because it came to a point where my brothers and I were, you know, she worried all the time about our safety because the irony is that I, we were living in a political time where my father was involved in a party to try and bring back democracy to our country. Um, it's funny how the wheels turn. And, uh, you can't buck genetics. Yeah. Yes, and, so it be, and that's the reason, actually, we were sent to the UK. Um, one of the reasons we were sent to be safe. Um, so, but my father... I would so, when I was studying my A-level English, I was studying John Mortimer, Voyage Around My Father. And as I was reading the book, there was a line in it that struck me, and I thought... It's so, I mean, just brought tears to my eyes because John Mortimer wrote of his father, he sent words into the courtroom as if they were soldiers into battle. And that was my father. He was just the most eloquent, distinguished lawyer, but he had a heart for, for humanity that he talked and told me about. But words are your army as well, are they not? I try to use words in a way that doesn't threaten, but communicates. Because in my world in investment, in finance, in marketing, words are actually used to create distance, to make fe people feel inferior, um, as if they are, don't, they're locked out of conversations. And I think words are much more powerful than that, in that they bring people together. They bring understanding, not separation. But we have fallen into, I think, um, a way of using words in a proud way that creates barriers rather than creates um, union. And that's what I try and use words for, to storytell. And I talk a lot in the book about storytelling and about using language to connect. You've also uh, talked a lot in the book about the fact that, um, and indeed when we were chatting earlier, about the fact that we've reached a point of divisiveness where almost people's opening remarks to you or to somebody else involved in, in these campaigns is, did you vote Remain or did you vote Leave? Oh, gosh, we're living in a... In a I, I, I sometimes wonder what historians will make of the place we're in. But we are living in very dangerous times. 
Um, my view is, is that uh, you know, society, if you think about it as walking on stable ground, the things that keep society stable, the foundations, are built on values and principles and the way we connect and respect each other. But those foundations have been neglected, so society, that ground we walk on, is now rocking from left to right, quite violently from left to right. And we have to look to the foundations. We have to look at bringing society back together. And I'm extremely worried that those who would exploit the divisions and the cracks in, in that foundation are doing so in a very systematic ideological way. And part of it is using Brexit as a almost a cultish uh, sort of uh, religion where people define themselves not by religion, but by how they voted. I mean, people I've known for years and years say to me now, if I, especially journalists, which I find very odd, that I've known for a very long time, before interviews, will now say to me, oh, by the way, you know, whisper, I voted leave or I voted remain as if it somehow has changed who they were. I, but I've known them for like 15, 20 years. And I think, well, why are you telling me that? But it has created, a, it's becoming an identity and a tribalism which is so destructive. And the, po those politicians who I think have a hidden agenda are, are actually picking at the wounds of Brexit. Define what you mean by that hidden agenda. I think it's a very right-wing agenda. I think it's an ideology that sees us as um, going towards a demolishing of democracy and a move towards an authoritarian society where they become the masters and the rest of us, painted through choice, become the obedient or, the less, or those with lesser choices. This is an agenda that's not just in the UK. I do see it as something that's happening on a very global basis, but it's a very deliberate, I believe it's a very deliberate state of political um, mis uh, or realignment. I want to ask you, Gina, <coughs> about next moves because um, we had Robert Peston at the Edinburgh International Book Festival a few, a few nights ago, and uh, he was saying that he thought if there was another vote a people's vote, that it might, get, uh, it might be a similarly narrow majority one way or another, and that this divisiveness, which we've been it's discussing, would, would intensify. And yet, I suspect for somebody like you, um, in, in order to, to finish your journey, as it were, a people's vote is probably quite a seductive idea. I believe I was the one who came up with the idea first. Um, because, Very seductive um, idea. I, I went to... I spoke with a, a, a gaming professor... <laughs> Um, a professor of gaming uh, uh, nearly a year ago and sort of said, how do you think from somebody outside politics this would end? And we, we tried so many scenarios and we came up with another vote because you, if you think about it very simply, politicians don't want to keep, get their hands dirty with Brexit. They want to walk away with this for their long-term goals. So they do not want to be tarred with Brexit. So what you do is just give it back to the people. It's actually the most logical thing for them to do um, because it's, it's an unf you know, it is a problem that is a riddle that they can never solve um, when you consider that neither side had a plan because it was never supposed to be that leave one. You know, this was a political game of the Conservative Party to heal their ranks. They, nobody in any, either side had plan A, B, or C. Um, and nobody thought about the complexities of it. So there was no plan, and we are where we are, and as the complexity of it dawns, um, how do they get out of this mess? Every day they're digging themselves into a deeper hole. So you give it back to the people. How? Oh. But this is the problem, because... My fear is that it's happening a bit too late. We only have, and when Parliament sits again um, next week, we have 10 weeks because we don't have till March next year because of something, the legal process called ratification. Um, 32 parliaments, not just 27 member states, 32 parliaments are going to have to agree on whatever deal it is. And so we have 10 weeks. So I wonder about the time we have to get a people's vote. That's one thing. I do think it's possible, 
but we're going to have to be very, very diligent about how that happens. The second thing is that I think the groups that are going to come together who are against Brexit, the Brextremists, will rise up and may well hijack a people's vote and push for only a deal or no deal. So a binary choice rather than the the three three options that Justin Greening proposed. But the biggest danger about that is psychologically people think that a no deal is better than a bad deal because they've already been already uh, rebranding it as a clean break. So the word clean rather than bad, um, they have a lot of knowledge and intelligence on their side and money. They know what they're doing. So I worry about them hijacking a people's vote. Um, and yet, since, uh, since all of this happened, uh, in the last three, four, five weeks, you've had the CBI, the Chamber of Commerce, the NFU, um, people involved in, in, the, in export in all kinds of different trade, all of them issuing quite stark warnings about what would happen if there wasn't a deal. If only they'd done it a year ago. But anyway, um, they are also too late in the day raising their voices. But let's not revisit the referendum because I want to come back to this idea of divisiveness because actually I think the reason I'm backing a vote is possibly different from other people. I think it is the most democratic thing we could do is to have all three choices because we have to draw a line under this. We the have third to choice have, being staying in the EU. I think it has to be Mrs May's deal, the special deal we already have, and no deal. I think you have to give everybody, because of the dark forces, all, all the things that people say, you know, there are so many reasons why a clean vote on the real options is really important for all three options. And at after that, there has to be an amnesty and we have to come back together. Because whilst all of this is going on, we have a zombie parliament who's wasting our money, our taxpayers' money, and the issues, the domestic issues of this country are being ignored day after day. There is... There are important questions that, were risen, uh, that arose out of Brexit. There are societies that are rightly being ignored. There is too much decision-making and controlling of budgets happening from Westminster. We do have an issue about having a totally unwritten constitution. We have a problem about 62% of the public feeling they have no political home. There are ma- major, major reforms that need to happen in the UK and in the EU. And Brexit has brought up those issues. There are positives out of Brexit, but we have to address them. We cannot carry on with the arguments of yesterday when the problems of tomorrow are becoming deeper and deeper. That's why we have to draw a line under Brexit. I think that's a very good note to let the audience in, if we may. Could we have the lights up, please? And we've got four mics now, and there's a gentleman there who got his hand up very quickly on the... On the aisle there, we'll start with you, sir. Well, that was a fantastic address, and I look forward to reading your book. Um, it is a magnificent effort, and it has been at great expense. Could you explain, now the government lost their case, whether they have paid you, repaid all your <laughs> expenses in full? Well, it was quite curious, because we actually had an agreement with the government that we wouldn't, we ha- we, we wouldn't um, claim expenses of each other. Um, Can I tell you a second story, though? Because when the government made the announcement that they were going to make the DUP statement, I also issued a legal letter to the government. Um, And at that point, I said, if we did go to court, then I wouldn't agree that they wouldn't pay me my expenses because I knew I would win again. Um, And uh, unfortunately, Parliament let us down because the government, we never got to court because the government came back and said, I challenged them and said, you have to have an act of Parliament to pay the DUP that that million pound bribe. Um, and uh, they agreed and said, yes, they did have to pay it, go to an act of parliament. And unfortunately, parliament rubber stamped it again. So we never went to court. But no, I've, they've never paid me any money. <laughs> There's a gentleman got the mic there. And, and because this is a. And there is another gentleman there. However, I do want a female voice yes, before please. we come to him. Has the, has the, can we have a question from a woman? In the queue, please. Oh, there's late. Yes, there's one there. Thank you very much. Right, sorry. Yeah, on you go, sir. Thank you. Um, I have uh, two questions. First of all, I must say I have enormous respect for what you've put yourself through and also what you've done on behalf of so many of us. 
Uh, my first question is, um, of all that um, abuse you got by Twitter and email and letter and other means, how many of those people have been prosecuted? That's my first question. The second question is, when having won your case and the decision on Article 50 actually went to Parliament, were you disappointed with the way that the MPs let us all down? So the first, um, there's been a Viscount who was sentenced to 12 weeks because he put on Facebook, he offered £10,000 for someone to um, have me beheaded. Um, and I was very, it was a very important case um, it has set another precedent, which is nobody on social media has been prosecuted and sent to jail before. So I worked with the CPS. So that has now set a precedent, which is now on our statute books. Um, uh, Twelve weeks was absolutely... I was disappointed by the case because um, under the uh, Malicious Communications Act or the Act of Inciting Sexual and Racial Violence, it should have gone to the High Court and he should have got a much longer sentence, but it he wasn't prosecuted on the, either of those. So there is a massive piece of work that needs to be done by the Law Commission to review both those acts and to look at the... Well, they're already looking at that, but there is... And also looking at um, legislation for social media. So again, I'm involved with that, and, and that work is happening now. And then there were eight what's called cease and desist letters, which are like a red card at the football match where you don't actually go to court but they're served by the police on individuals. And of those eight um, cease and desist letters, three of the individuals are actually suing the police for harassment. <laughs> um, because they were found. Uh, uh, the, I have to say, some of the most vicious and the most... Uh, as I said, my children in the audience, uh, um, we, found, we couldn't find because of the dark web, which is something... I also can't quite understand why politicians are even allowing. Um, the name says it all. But uh, yes, the dark web is something we really must be very um, alert to. On your second question, once we won, I thought that they, the debates in Parliament would be the finally there would be the debates that had not happened before the referendum. I thought we would have the sort of um, assessments on, that we're having now, two years later. Um, I had no idea that Mrs May would actually just pass a simple act to trigger Article 50. And I could not, and I still will not understand why the MPs did not have a proper debate. And I will say that the Labour Party in particular, the official opposition at that time, to not have stood up and held the government's feet to account and say, where are your plans, where are your studies, where are your assessments, is just shameful and unforgiving. No, there's a lady Can I just say, I say that as having been a senior member of the Labour Party. There's a lady got the mic there, and then there's a gentleman in the middle here who, if somebody can get the mic to him, and then have we got another female... There's a young lady in the middle. Yes, thank you. And, and, and then there. Right, sorry. Please carry on. Um, mine's is a little bit of a follow-up to this one, actually, so it's kind of been partially answered. But um, it was a question about how do you feel um, the main opposition, the leadership, has um, reacted to the people's vote, and do you think they should be doing more? What would you like to see them do? How did we end up with two leaders who actually don't, aren't statespeople? I don't quite understand. But anyway... Um, I think the, Labour, the thing about the Labour Party is the membership is 73% in favour of a vote. So are um, quite a lot of the local Labour parties, even Momentum, have moved. There is movement there, and what was very heartening to me was Keir Starmer's statement last week to say that it's not off the table. Um, I think they are fearful, though, of the same things that I'm fearful of, which is it's going to be hijacked to deal or no deal. So there is a movement there, and um, I think they worry about the mechanism of making it happen. So I will work with a team that we will draft that and just hand it to them and say, now what? Um, but they are moving, and I think conference will be really interesting um, because I know that there aren't many debates on Brexit, but I believe the Labour Party can, um, manifesto is being challenged by, on that. I know the um, 150 
local members or leaders of, of the Labour Party are challenging to make sure there are proper debates on Brexit. Um, so there is movement. Again, we are running out of time. That's the only issue I have, is that they have to really make a decision sooner rather than later. You'll be aware, of course, that there's a different position in Scotland where 62% of the population voted to remain. Yes, I am. Um, the... the, the, uh, the uh, English party, if you like it, in United Kingdom. I think what, what I find very bizarre about the Labour Party is um, they can see the damage for workers' rights, for rights, wholesale rights, for people's lives, for funding, for, and, and yet they are holding on to this, or certain members of the Labour Party are holding on to this Benite old view that the EU is the most, um, you know, the bastion of the elitists and all the old, you know, uh, rhetoric of 1970s, which is so misplaced. But, um, you know, like anything, you have to, if you want to reform something, you have to be at the table to do so. But oddly, um, (laughs) oddly, the people around the Labour leadership are um, themselves posh boys from the elite. Well, there's one particular who is a stumbling block who definitely fits that um, profile. Um, And perhaps the leadership and members around the leader should be brave enough to get rid of him. Um, But I think they're they're going to have to stand up and make a decision. The members of the Labour Party, including the uh, young people in the Labour Party, are getting incredibly impatient. So they're going to have to come out with a decision soon. Right, the gentleman in the middle, I think, has got the mic. We'll, 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 I tell you what, we'll send another one along while we take the question up the back. There's a young lady who's been very patient. Yes, on you Hi. go. Um, first of all, thank you very much for speaking. I mean, I admire you so much for what you've done. Um, my question is, you said we were running out of time and we've only got really ten weeks. What happens if we don't have another vote and we end up leaving with either no deal or a really bad deal? What will happen if we do end up leaving the European Union? Will we get a chance to join again? Because I'm only 15, so (laughs) I'm going to be around if that ever happens. Yeah. You are incredibly brave to have asked a question, and I'm. uh, I hope you keep on using your voice. Um, In answer to your question, nobody is a futurologist, unfortunately. But um, the things to remember is that no deal means no transition. It's really important to understand that. Um, But also that the EU is going to be in as much trouble as us, or even, you know, not maybe as much, but they will also suffer if there's no deal. So I believe they will do everything within their power to ensure there isn't. And I think they will offer a Canada deal. Um, They've already announced just yesterday that they will extend it by four weeks, so the October summit will now be November. Um, They will be very accommodating if we were to achieve a people's vote, or it could be a general election, you know. It it, it might not necessarily be a vote, but we will have... I'm pushing for us to have another say in whichever format, uh, a general election or another vote. Um, But in the rejoining, it's not going to be easy, because... Whilst there is complete unity in defending the um, European Union from the member states, they have their own problems. They're already factoring, you know, there are sort of three main groups within the EU who have their own issues. And we are not top of their agenda. Day by day, we drop down their agenda. Um, And if we were to join or apply to join again, it would not be on the same special relationship we have now they will say, well, you come all the way in. And that's the euro, you know, it's not going to be on the terms we have now. We already, the irony of where we are is that we have a government negotiating a special deal when we already have the most special deal of the European (laughs) Union. It is absurd. But what we have are arrogant, lazy politicians who really didn't go in there and demand enough. But... I'm not sure that we will get to a no deal because every day we're, doing, we're seeing the damage. The papers that were issued this week by Mr. Rapp were the best of the worst-case scenarios. If those are the best cases of the worst-case scenarios, I can't wait to see what the other papers are going to say. 
because finally there'll be an understanding of this. We are not simply switching off a light and from the European Union and switching on another one, be it no deal, WTO, etc. We are reversing 44 years of membership. And what we did in those 44 years is decided that it was better to be part of a union where we did not have to have the infrastructure or the talent or the people to build, be it medical agencies or senior courts or dispute courts or open skies. We decided that it was better for us to have a collective which did that. The analogy, I don't particularly like the analogy, but it is, does serve the purpose here, of being a member of the club, is that if you, it's cheaper to join a club that has a gym and the pool than you building it in your own backyard. <laughs> and that's what we did. So it's not that Britain... You know, all these ideas, oh, you are talking us down, we won't be great in the future. Where are we going to find in... Uh, the space of time that would not dent your generation, the infrastructure, the money, the talent to put in place those things that we vested over the last 44 years. It is not going to happen overnight. It never would. And where are we going to find the money? These are the issues that are not really being explained plainly enough by the politicians. So I think if we can get to the place in the 10 weeks where we can start having those sorts of dialogues in a very sensible way, the no deal crashing out, I think, will not happen. And I very much hope it won't happen for your sake. Don't you think, Gina, that um, one of the most dispiriting things about all this is that young people like that young lady there is having her future mortgage by the fact that people of my demographic voted overwhelmingly for leave? And they're not going to be around when she, when she needs the money. It's, I don't think it's helpful to have the divides, to talk about the young and old whilst they are there. I, I don't it's think just it's the, helpful. Just the, no, but the statistics tell the that statistics story. The statistics do tell that story. Um, and I think it's uh, something I spend a lot of my time going around the country trying to understand. And actually... It's shifted a lot from two years ago. There is a different understanding. And I think that's why we must talk about now, not what happened two years ago. I don't think it's helpful to go back. But um, I think there is a different mindset uh, that young people see themselves as being Euro British and European and having that freedom of movement and having the freedom of choice. Whereas there is still a mindset of uh, yesterday that might be seen to have less problems than today. But remember, yesterday is always a foreign land. It's always where things were different. Um, and that's possibly what's happened with some of the older mindsets of, you know, thinking that some of the problems we have today were attributed to maybe immigrants or, you know, pressures on our public services, etc., which are actually not true. I don't know if that gentleman has now got... Is this working now? Yeah. Yes, perfect, Hi, perfect. <laughs> yes, yeah. he has. Yeah, it's just a, well, a very e easy question, I hope. Um, is Brexit Yes, because they've been very difficult questions. Is, is Brexit a, a feminist issue? Well, now that's an interesting question. Is Brexit a feminist issue? I don't understand why it would be. Um, because... If it's about the future of our country, if it's about people voting, whichever way they voted, to, to hope for a better future um, and want to be heard and a cry, whatever you think Brexit was about, I don't think that sees gender. Um, what I would say is a very interesting, um, I would take from your question, is that maybe the more feminine sides of the argument of the softer benefits of our, U our membership of the union, of peace, of community, of solidarity, have possibly been ignored for the more masculine money, authoritarian power. So I think that's where there's a gender issue, but I wouldn't say it was a feminist issue. Right, the lady in the front there and then somebody up the side.
I wonder what your thoughts are on the Irish border question. <laughs> um, just because I feel that no real solution has been put forward. And last oh, there week, none. the advice, um, if you know, there was a hard Brexit, people in Northern Ireland should contact Dublin. So <laughs> it, it was very vague advice. I, I, d I don't see how there is a, an issue. And I think if you... Uh, I, would, I would request that most Brexiteers or people who still believe um, in a hard border should actually watch an incredible film called The Journey, um, which is about Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley talking about... Uh, but, you know, I, I think people have forgotten. And, you know, one of my saddest things when I, talk, when I go around schools talking about education is that I don't think we talk about our present or our... Uh, history, modern history, rather than teaching still about the Tudors. But anyway, um, <laughs> I don't think there is a solution. I believe that in the Irish constitution, they can have a referendum on unification. It's actually written into the Irish constitution. Um, and has never been exercised, but could be. And I believe that if there is a hard Brexit, they will be pushed for unification. Um, the Vratka, the, and both sides have already spoken of this and voiced this, and I can't see why they wouldn't. What I will share with you is something I find very sad, which is that there was a poll not so long ago where they asked leavers two questions. One was, if the outcome of Brexit meant a hard, um, the end of the Good Friday Agreement, what would be your views? And I believe it was 82% who said fine, doesn't matter. The second question was if the uh, outcome of Brexit meant an independent Scotland, would that bother you? And I believe 90-odd percent said no. So from the voters in that poll, Brexit is an English issue. I think... I think you stole the mic from the trap behind you. <laughs> it was a nice try, though. <laughs> Very eagle-eyed of you. The, the chap's actually a woman, so you are. <laughs> I'm, I'm really sorry. No, that's all right. I'm a woman of a certain age with dodgy eyesight. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Gina Miller. I'm a lawyer, so um, what you provided lawyers with uh, during that um, case was, to be perfectly honest, and I pardon my French, was legal pornography. It was one <laughs> just watching. Uh, I, I, I work for the university. We were all basically just glued to the screen for weeks. That was very, very It was extraordinary. Um, the question I want to ask, although one may, could I, could I make one quick comment to the gentleman before? I do actually think it's a feminist issue because I think the EU provides an awful lot of protection for women in terms of, for instance, protection for part-time workers, all of this sort of stuff. So I think there is a lot of feminism to be found in this issue. But the question I wanted to ask, I'm actually a EU migrant. I come originally from Germany. So um, the impression I always get in this country, and I lived in England for 20 years, so I'm a relatively new Scottish transplant, uh, is that the question, uh, the discussion about the EU here is always about the money. It's always about we're not getting back as much money as we pay in. And when you come from Germany, the EU isn't about the money. It's about peace. It's about political cohesion. It's about not having another war. It's about all these questions of why we started this question. And I'm wondering whether you feel that this is ever going to change in this country, because that probably, having lived here for 25 years, is the one thing that sort of disappoints me most and that sort of frustrates me most, that whenever we're talking about the EU, it's always only about the economics. Mm. And will that ever change? Is the, is the UK ever going to get away from its splendid isolation, where it just doesn't have to fear war because there is a channel between us and the other ones? Thank you very much. I agree with you. I think we, were, we went in for economic reasons, and we went in with a psychological mindset. Um, the British went into it with a psychological mindset of, we won the war, we had an empire, and our best friends were the US. So it was a very different mindset from that of peace and cohesion and living and understanding that if you're not fighting with your neighbors, but you're trading with your neighbors, there is more chance of peace in the long term. So I absolutely agree with you. And this um, 
you know, there are so many ironies. I think the younger generation are the resolution of that, because I think they have a very different mindset. I go around the country speaking to a lot of schools and universities, and they have a very different view of the EU. But the, there is a fault in not just the UK, but I think all the member states, that we have not taught, we do not teach what the EU is about. You know, I spoke to the head of the, Nor uh, of the um, uh, EFTA countries, Norway, we had, because their referendum was very close too. Um, and we talked about this because we don't teach about the EU. You, that's, and for that reason, um, people who want to leave can put out there, it is the most undemocratic institution. No, it's not. Every single person is, is elected. Um, and if you understand how the committees work, um, and the fact that each uh, a minister, secretary of state for each issue sits at the table and discusses those issues, you know, you'd understand democracy and in, in its most powerful setting. But we don't teach that. And so I think if we taught more about the EU, we would understand it more. So I do think it's a fault in the curriculum, and it's a fault particularly in the UK. And the irony, just on your legal point, which um, strikes me so much about Article 50, is A, it was written by British lawyers, and secondly, we are the only member state without a written constitution, and yet we are the ones who triggered it. The ironies are multiple. Just a small correction, Sir John Kerr was a Scottish... Uh, <laughs> If, if there's anybody with He'd a one, correct me himself if, he if there's anybody with a one-sentence question, they can. Oh, there's a gentleman up there. Is it a one-sentence question, sir? Okay, go for it. How would the result of a three-way referendum be determined? So, you would. It would be second preferences. We'd have to go for second preference. Um, but whilst I'm fighting for that now, uh, because I think it's it's the most democratic thing we can talk about. I have a feeling in time that no deal will come off the table when people realise the damage that, that would do and the fact that we were not ready and it would damage both the EU and us. But let's see. But I think from the point of view of it being the three choices, it would have to be second preference. One more. Lady in the aisle there. Another one sentence. We started late, so you've got maybe... Actually, you've got 30 seconds. <laughs> what do you want us to do? Ha-ha. <laughs> Right. Okay. Okay, there is a lot to do. Parliament sits um, for a short time and then you have conference. Um, your MPs, the only way a second vote will happen is if there is legislation in Parliament around either meaningful vote withdrawal bill. They have to be pressurised. The decision is theirs. It ha it's at their door. And unless they can feel the movement and they can feel that what's, putting in the, what's in the papers is wrong, that what the Sun says is nobody's changed their mind and nobody wants to back a referendum. You have to petition the MPs, lobby their surgeries, write to them, fill their inboxes. Um, they have to hear your voice. Um, and I think at conference, if you can, be there outside and be noisy. These are Edinburgh folk. <laughs> they can be very noisy. But actually, your, Remain, your, your groups... But, but I think also, the other thing to do is, I don't think we can paint this as remain or leave anymore. This is actually about our country, and this is about the future. And the future will only work if we, have, we come together. And I think we have to be mindful not to blame others, but to talk about us moving together, together. Ladies and gentlemen... Ladies and gentlemen, you've had more than a glimpse of the Syrian intelligence that brought this whole <laughs> thing uh, to the courts in the first place. The book is quite astonishing because apart from talking about what happened to Gina after she made that move, um, it's also a fascinating insight into her earlier life and what made her the kind of feisty, fighting, <laughs> valuable woman she is. Please join me in thanking Gina Miller.
Ladies and gentlemen, I don't, I don't want to interrupt a well-deserved standing ovation, but I did forget to say that Gina will, be, <laughs> Gina will be in the signing tent left and left again if you want to talk some more and get a copy of the book. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, my God. Thank you yourself now. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.